0: The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and black lives matter. (coughs) Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals, you're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no-good neck boyfriend. Spoiler, as we know the answer is always yes. If you're familiar with my work, you'll know I'm very passionate about pelvic floor health for people with vaginas, particularly if they've given birth and experienced any resulting weaknesses or even prolapse. I recently bought a product that I've been so impressed with that I reached out to the company to ask if we could partner to share this information with listeners of the hotline. It's called Perifit, and I'm not kidding when I say it takes all of the guesswork out of doing your kegels. This product literally turns your Kegels into a computer game. You insert the device into your vagina, connect it to your Bluetooth, and follow the directions through different levels and settings to contract and relax your pelvic floor at intervals. It has different settings for your needs, from postpartum to stress incontinence to simple maintenance. And yes, regular use of it can help prevent a prolapse. You can order Perifit at perifit.co. It comes with a 100-day money-back guarantee, a 5-year guarantee on its battery life, and quick and discreet delivery. Not that we should have to be discreet about something so essential to our health. I use the Perifit anywhere from 3 to 6 days a week, and I have noticed a measurable difference in a matter of a few short weeks. And when I say measurable, I mean the program itself tracks and stores my stats so I can see the improvement in real time. Best of all, no more leaks. Try Perryfit at perifit.co and squeeze your way back to confidence. I am very excited to welcome to the hotline this week, our guest. She is an author, an activist, an educator. Her book Fixed It, Violence and the Representation of Women in the Media is a fascinating, searing insight into the way men's violence against women is minimized in mainstream media. Her Fixed It project has become instrumental in providing a language of media literacy to people who can see the stark absence of it. Most of all, I'm very proud and privileged to call her a friend. She's an excellent woman. We've shared many, many, many bottles of wine over the years, and I feel grateful and humbled to stand alongside her as a feminist. Please welcome Jane Gilmore. Jane.
1: Well, that was quite the introduction. Now I've got to live up to it.
0: Well, you definitely can. Anyone who knows you and knows your work knows that you are more than capable. How are you?
1: Oh, you know, locked down. I think this is the first time I've been
0: out of my pyjamas in three days. Yay, me. Congratulations. (laughs) I hope that's some celebratory brandy you're swigging from your tea mug there. No, sadly, it's just coffee. (laughs) Now, I just have to say as well for the listeners that I'm sorry if you are picking up any construction noise in the background of this podcast. Um, I record from my kitchen. Obviously, I don't have a professional setup and we can't go anywhere these days anyway. But very luckily for me, all throughout stage four lockdown, we've had intense construction work going on right outside the window. So it is uh, the soundtrack to my life now. So, So it's the soundtrack to yours for the duration of this one hour long podcast fun <laughs> how are you coping with lockdown
1: um it's up and down you know it's not like it's the same all the time there are some days where I think it's great and I get so much writing done and I'm completely content in my own space and then there's other days where I'm just going nuts because I miss people I don't even like you know mm. so it's all over the place and I think it is with everybody like I, I don't know if there's anyone that's doing this easily some people are more easily than others but it's not even just about the now, it's, it's what happens when I get out. I've lost all my work. So when's that going to come back and how is it going to come back and how am I going to be different and be able to go back and can I still do the things I used to do? You know, there's all those questions that at the moment there's no way of answering them. So that one, if you think about it too much, can get on top of you.
0: I went for a walk this morning with a friend of mine who I haven't actually seen all throughout lockdown all stages of it, you know, all 20 years of lockdown. Um, and we finally caught up and went out for our prescribed one-hour-long exercise session. I mean, she just lives around the corner, but, you know, we haven't seen each other until now. And she was talking to me about um, re-entry syndrome. And it's my friend Jill Stark, actually, who some people might know as an, uh, an activist around anxiety and wellness mm. and um, sobriety, and she will be coming on the podcast at some point. But we were talking about re-entry syndrome, and she was saying that uh, – you know, with people who've spent significant periods of time in, say, Antarctica Antarctica, working, you know, as scientists or researchers, and I suppose as well it would it would account for people who've, you know, say, been astronauts and returning to Earth from the space station after months away, that the mental adjustment, the re-entry process that people have to go through is actually pretty significant. And that's something that it would be interesting to look at New Zealand and other places around the world which have had such significant lockdowns and what that re-entry into socialization Mm -hmm. is like for people afterwards, because that's something I think about um, just in terms of the emotional perspective. How will we all know how to be in large groups of people.
1: Well, I don't know that there's been anywhere that's locked down the way Melbourne has, the way we went through the first one with the whole country, and then the second one that's going, that's so severe and going on for so long, with such a short gap in between it. And it's interesting you talk about the reentry thing because I was saying to a friend the other day that I'm starting to feel institutionalised. That now when I do go outside, I don't like it. there's there's people around and there's too much space and and clothes are just uncomfortable and I want to just be at home because that's where I spend all my time and I'm so used to it now that going other places feels weird. And I can see how after, what is it now, like you say, 20 years of this with that little break for a couple of weeks in the middle, that's what I was saying before about I don't know how I'm going to come out of this and be the same person and do the same things, that Will I still be able to get up and stand in front of 500 people and talk confidently the way I used to when now I don't even talk to one person? You know, I've got no idea what's going to happen when we come out of this and sometimes it can be really scary.
0: Mm. Alongside that and that is so true, that resonates very strongly for me. but alongside that is also this weird knowledge that in some ways, in lots of ways, the world still still carries on as yeah. it used to. And in particularly in the work that you do, um, I mean, to put it bluntly, men are still hurting women well. all over the world, and you're still being confronted with headlines. That you need to fix in order to change the language around men's violence against women.
1: Well, as we know, men are actually hurting women more in lockdown than they were beforehand, um, for all the reasons that I'm sure you've gone into in other podcasts about why women are so much more at risk from violent men. Now, it was interesting with the fix it stuff over the time over lockdown, and it really clarified something for me that I sort of knew beforehand, but but really made it stark was that so much of fix it is centred in crime reporting and court reporting, because that's how men's violence against women is reported. It's a crime. And there's a lot of violence that men commit that is not actually a crime. And the other problem with it, of course, is that it takes a single moment in time, just one incident, whereas domestic abuse is not just one incident, it's an ongoing long-term pattern of behaviour. And because the media reports it just as a crime that's in court or the police have been to, breaking news, that kind of thing, they're focusing on one incident. They will often report the excuses that perpetrators make to pretend that their violence wasn't their fault or their choice, which it always is. And it removes everybody a bit from the realities of men's violence and it makes it even more understandable that people who haven't experienced it themselves don't understand what it is. Mm. And I had a... (laughs) Had a bit of a breakthrough and had more sympathy for the the why doesn't she leave crowd. Not because I agree with them, but because I can see how you would think that if you've never experienced it yourself, because how else are you getting your information about this kind of stuff, if not from the media? And the media is so, so, so bad at reporting it and explaining it and putting it into context.
0: So let's just take a step right back to the basics of this for anyone who is not familiar with the fixed it project, uh, which if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with it, then I really strongly urge you to buy Jane's book, Fixed It, uh, because it's not only an incredibly important read, but it's also it's once you see this stuff, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. Um, So just let's just go back to the beginning and explain what Fixed It is, how it came about and how it's evolved.
1: Apologies to anybody who's heard me tell this story countless times before because I feel like I'm, I've am i just, it's almost like a poem I say now that I've just memorised. But um, it started about five or six years ago, a bit longer I think, um, I was writing about men's violence against women and I was writing articles about the way the media was reporting it and getting no cut through at all. And then I was on a tram one day coming home from somewhere and in my Facebook feed an article came up With a headline saying um, Townsville police say selfie leads to stabbing murder and I looked at it and thought selfies don't cause murder selfies have never caused murder there is only one thing that causes murder and that is a choice to commit murder so instead of writing something about it or yelling into the abyss I pulled up one of those apps on your phone that you're supposed to use to make yourself look 10 kilos lighter and 10, 10 years younger and I crossed out the headline and rewrote it as something that I think now would, I would understand was completely subjudicy judice contempt, man's choice to, to kill a woman causes murder, and sent it out to social media. And that got the response that I had always been trying to get when I was writing about it. And quite literally, one picture was a thousand-word article. So I realised the power of an image that you can take in like that that shows you what has been said and what should be said and where the differences are. And while I still put explainers in all the posts, I know that a lot of people don't read them. Because I'm five, six years later, I'm still back to every day now. And the explainers are useful for people who want to know more information, like the book for people who want to know even more about it, but the image itself is enough to tell you this is the myth that this headline is based on. This is when they, you know, they take the when I was doing today, the um, perpetrator's excuse. Oh, it wasn't, I wasn't abusing her. It was a play fight. And that's in the headline. He's pled guilty. Like there's no doubts here. There's no he said, she said, he pled guilty to domestic violence offences, but the headline still describes it as a play fight. So these are the things that just come up over and over again. And it's one of the things about doing this and the audience response that's been so strong which is exactly what you said. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And the best reaction that I get that I still get now is people saying to me, oh, my God, I hadn't noticed how much of this there is until I saw this, saw the fixed thing you do, and now I'm seeing it everywhere. And that means that it's taking some of the power away from it because it's always the things that we don't notice that do the harm. Things yeah. we do, though, when we can see that they're wrong, when we can see what they're doing, they, they, don't, they lose a lot of their power. But when we don't notice it and it just filters through into your head and you don't even know that it's reinforcing all those myths, that's when it really does damage.
0: You know, it's so easy to feel really helpless in the face of such overwhelming, uh, not only the overwhelming kind of awareness of men's violence against women, but also that sense that how can you as a single person in the world do anything material to change it? And it's very easy to get kind of overwhelmed by that and sort of throwing your hands up and go, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm not being provided with any solutions, so I I just don't know what to do. But as you said, by presenting people with a picture and a very simple kind of framework around how to understand exactly what this looks like, it empowers people to be able to spot it for themselves. And so one of the things obviously that you experience, um, which is true of any kind of uh, transformative Effective social media campaign like Fixed It is that you now have people submitting things to you. Fix this headline. Fix this one. So, so people are empowering themselves to be active in doing that work and in complaining about headlines. And I feel like since you've started the project, and it, it it's gone alongside growing discussions around men's violence against women and people's willingness to have that conversation. But it's a lot harder for stuff like that to slip under the radar because the backlash from the public to mainstream media is becoming more pronounced and i want to read out one of the headlines that you fixed the other day um and just a, a content note on this that it is uh, it references the murder of a woman and a and a, obviously all murder is very traumatic but a particularly egregious form of it so the headline was Teenager accused of newman Wheelie bin murder to face trial in February. And you fixed it by simply crossing out newman Wheelie bin and changed it to woman's. Teenager accused of woman's murder to face trial in February. And your annotated note, uh, your annotation on it is, she was a woman and a person, not a goddamn wheelie bin. What is wrong with you? It's so stark when you see it laid out like that. But one of the frustrating things that I know you and I both experience is that it's still happening. How after all this time, after all of this community sentiment, after the the success of projects like Fixed It and the public doing that work for you, how are journalists still making these mistakes? Is it willfulness? Is it just laziness? Or is it just that people keep entering the profession and having inadequate training? Because the profession and as a reflection of society itself just ultimately doesn't really care about women?
1: Um, Look, I think all of those things are true of some people, but the reason that I wrote an entire book about this is it's not a simple thing. Like it's the reasons this happened is so complex. As you and I have talked about endlessly, patriarchy is embedded into every single aspect of our lives and the media particularly, which is so white dominated, that report that came out last week, So overwhelmingly dominated by white men in senior positions absolutely has an effect and particularly, as I was saying before, about the crime and court reporting, what you're doing there is you're tying together a white male-dominated media with a white male-dominated justice system and a white male-dominated police system and they're all really tied very, very closely together in in court reporting and crime reporting. And so these attitudes that permeate the courts where Almost every rape trial uses rape myths to try and discredit the victim and make the rapist look like a good guy. That's that's just standard defence tactics in any rape trial and you've got judges that allow it and media that reports on it. So it's this constant feedback loop between the three of them When I talk to journalists about it, even when I talk to senior men who insist, of course, that they're really good guys and they would never, ever hit a woman and I would never let another man hit a woman and I would always stand up and stop that if I saw it happening and then you say to them, well, you know somebody who does this. Oh, no, I don't. None of my mates would do that. And you think, yes, they would. You can't know seven men in Australia and not know what, uh, very likely know a man who does this. So any man who thinks that he doesn't know anyone that does this or has done this is absolutely kidding himself. But it's that constant attitude of, of oh, well, it's not us. And I think a lot of this stuff in the headlines that I do, it's it's this underlying feeling of, of not all men.
0: Mm.
1: It's never explicitly said, but it, the constant erasure of the men who commit violence seems to be this, oh, but we don't want to say that men do this. You know, there's a thing I say in almost all of them that if every single headline about men's violence against women was written in the active voice with the man who committed the violence at the front of it, it would be overwhelming. Like it it would just never stop because it, it is overwhelming because the amount of those crimes that happen is exhausting. I think the only thing that gives me some hope is because I've been doing this for so long and you can get more of a long-term view. If you just look from this week to last week to next week, nothing's changed and it's despair can get you. Over the long term, when I think back to what I was doing in that first year, where I could have done, I could have spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and still would have had a pile of things that I couldn't get to. And I think, well, some things have definitely changed, but he was such a good guy reporting. Um, Mm. That's really not there the way it was. It was constant. Any time a man killed his wife and and or children, there was always, you know, the quote from the neighbour, but he was such a good guy.
0: He He always needed to hear about his hobbies and and what made him so wonderful.
1: He waved to me when we took the bins out, so, you know, he must have been a great guy and I can't believe he killed his wife, that kind of thing. You really don't see too much of that anymore.
0: Um, the- it's interesting because, uh, sorry, just to interrupt you. Yeah. I mean, obviously I have equally railed against the good guy, the good bloke reporting, mm. and I don't think that it is designed for this purpose, which is why we need to rail against it. But it would, it would be a nice, if people were going to go down that path, it would be nice for them at least to make the cognitive link to saying, he seemed like such a good person, which indicates to me that I can't truly trust and know what is going on in anyone's house, regardless of how nice they are on the street. You know, it's funny that men always seem to want to take credit for men's achievements throughout history whenever you're arguing with them about something or not even arguing, just ignoring them and they come and they want to tell you about how much they hate feminism or how feminists are all weak or whatever and men built the world and men have designed everything, men have invented everything. Like even to the extent that when their football team wins, they're like, we won. Like you didn't do shit, Damien. Um, They always want to take credit for the achievements of a tiny minority of men throughout history. But as soon as it's addressing the much more explicit and more constant and more prevalent example of men's violence, not just against women, but also against other men. All of a sudden it's like, oh well, not all men do that. Most men are bloody great. Most men are bloody. I'd never never ever stand by when I if a man was hurting another woman. Mm -hmm. Shit. Like how many times have you seen men just say nothing about even casual sexism? They're not even they can't even stand up against that. They're not going to go and stand up against someone threatening a woman.
1: Well, most of the time they, the men that I know don't see casual sexism as the, oh, it was just a joke. It wasn't sexism. He didn't really mean it. Oh, no, I yeah. think people have a sensitive. Like it, it's, they don't even recognise
0: sure it. That. Are you sure he didn't mean it? Are you sure that even happened? I'm, I am well, i don't know. That doesn't sound yeah, real to always me.
1: trying to create trouble, you know. Just, just, we're just trying to have a nice night. Could you just let it go for once? Oh,
0: yes, yeah, stop being such a buzzkill. Like, why do you always have to be the one that... I always hated that with my dad in particular that it was like why do you always have to be the one that makes things difficult it's like pointing out fucking bullshit happening around me is not me making it difficult it's me making it obvious yeah you know I remember having an argument with um a friend of mine's former partner thankfully she got rid of that guy fucking loser um and he was getting angry at me one night because you know, I'm a man hater, obviously, and I just malign all men and, you know, not all men, et cetera, et cetera. All of the arguments that we know. And I was, he was saying in the one breath, saying that women needed to take responsibility when they went out and to dress appropriately because they're a bad man out. I mean, all of the arguments that we know, yeah. all of the victim blaming shit that we get sort of like forced onto us, which, by the way, when you then turn around and go, okay, well, as a woman, the world is clearly unsafe for me. And, we need to take precautions. Men are the same ones who turn around, the same ones who tell you that are the ones who then turn around and go, oh, well, you're just bloody paranoid, love. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so he was saying that, you know, women need to take responsibility because there are bad men out there. and, And I said, well, how about men stop raping women? And he didn't like that, obviously. And he said, well, no, that's just such a small minority of men that would do that. And I don't know, no one I know, would do that. And I said, how can you possibly know whether or not any of the men that you know have ever sexually assaulted a woman? And he was like, well, I just, I just know that they wouldn't. And, and I said, well, but how, like statistically, given how many women have been sexually assaulted and raped, how could you not know a man who who's done that? And he said, I don't know anyone who's been raped. <laughs> and I was like, you're a fucking ignorant dickhead. Well, he certainly sounds like the kind of guy
1: that you would tell your rape story to. because He's so sympathetic.
0: Yeah, let's go out to lunch and I'll tell you about one of the worst things that's ever happened to me that you'll probably not believe by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that, like, how can you this to me indicates the massive difference between men and women in having these discussions is that if you're a man and you can make it to your mid-30s and think that you don't know a single woman who's been sexually assaulted, you're not asking women you're not asking the women that you claim to love any kind of questions about their life but you're also not making yourself the kind of man that would be that they feel safe to tell those things to so men should reflect on that
1: and i would suggest possibly even deliberately stopping any of the women that are close to them telling those kind of stories because again I mean I God I wasn't even out of my teens before I was hearing those stories from my girlfriends, so now it's it's almost at the point that sometimes you know it's a joke like i don't it, you know you can't always trying to make a rape joke that's difficult, but when it's the woman who's been raped and she's sitting there with a glass of wine and she's making that joke herself, you've got to let her make it. But I sit there sometimes and listen to those women and think, Jesus. The bar we have for men is so fucking low that I'm listening to this woman making this joke. And somebody said to me afterwards, Wow, our male friend who was sitting there was so great that night, wasn't he? And I went, Why? What did he do? And she said, Well, he didn't say anything. Like he didn't try and argue with her or anything. And I was just like, Hang on, where's the parade? Yes, somebody a big jar of cookies now i'm not saying he is a bad guy and i think he was you know there was a lot of women there, yeah, there just staying quiet but like that's the bar he didn't actually make a kind of himself so yay him you know and and the other thing that i just wanted to say too about the not all men not all men does not mean i'm defending all men not all men means i'm defending me I wouldn't do that. I'm not that kind of guy and when you're talking about men, you're talking about me because I am the hero and the centre of every single goddamn story I've heard. So what yeah. you're saying is me and that's why they get so angry. That's why the not all men crowd are so furious because they hear it as you're talking about me and they claim to be defending all men. They're not. They're defending themselves.
0: Mm. And- oh, <laughs> that's so true. And I, I made that point actually in... Um, it's going to, I'm going to sound like such a wanker here. I made that book in at uh, that point in one of my books. So I can't remember which one. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, a- because white men in particular and white straight cis men especially have always been the centre and the hero of any story, that if they're not, if there's only one man in the story and he's a baddie, then they think I'm the baddie and yeah. that's me because I don't want to be the daddy and you're not acknowledging. That's why so many men responded so supportively and positively when the news broke about uh, Brock Turner raping Chanel Miller and she wrote the most powerful essay in BuzzFeed afterwards and, you know, obviously her words were incredibly moving and illustrative Mm. about, you know, her experience and what he'd subjected her to. But I also think it was because there were two... Swedish cyclists, yeah. men, came past and quote, unquote, helped her, that men following that story were able to go, well, in this in this situation I'd be the cyclist. Yeah. And also the power of male testimony, that it was two men who yeah. saw it happen and so therefore like it's an immutable point. It must have happened because two men witnessed it.
1: Yeah. Uh, if those two cyclists had been two women or two, two non-binary folk, could you imagine if they were two trans women? Could you imagine the oh. reaction to that? It's Because women are not reliable witnesses to their own experiences. Only men are. I
0: can are. guarantee you that if it had been two women who'd seen it, then we would have been subjected to all of these disgusting conspiracy theory- theories about how it was a revenge plot. You know, yeah. any kind of like sort of backflip that men in general have to kind of reach for to make sure that we all know that women lie. Uh, and they'll do it. Like the least likely scenario is, of course, the one that makes them feel the the most comfortable. Um, And, you know, you mentioned rape, sort of quote-unquote rape jokes before. Now I'm of the view that a clever joke that kicks up, sorry, that kicks up, yeah, a clever joke that kicks up instead of kicking down can always be a way to uh, make an effective political point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if you have survived something traumatic and you're the one making a joke about it, then you're in a position to be able to do that because you are obviously making a joke about rape culture as opposed to saying, ha hilarious joke about rape that makes me align myself with a rapist. And it, don't you think it's interesting that so many men, not just the ones who stand on stages and tell incredibly disgusting, violent jokes about the sexual assault of another human being, but also the ones who sit there and laugh at it will turn around and defend those things by saying, oh, but, you know, we need to be able to joke about traumatic topics. It's how we it's how we alleviate stress around them. And I always think, you know what's interesting about that is that your stress is not about being sexually assaulted, it's about being accused of it. Yes. And that's why you laugh because it's it's alleviating the stress for you that you may have done it. And my
1: question is always, well, why are you stressed about that? Why are you so defensive about that? Why are you so concerned that people are going to perceive you as a rapist or an abuser? Because, you know, apparently not all men, and there are some men who don't find get, need to get defensive about that. And I look at the differences and think, well, why is that bloke able to sit there and go, yeah, that's just fucked, isn't it? And somebody else is banding in with the not all men screening. What's the hmm. difference between these two? And you know, you scratch the surface a little bit and the difference becomes very obvious.
0: Mm. I could rant about this with you all day, yeah. Jane Gilman. I believe we've done that on occasion before. <laughs> and we will do it again with wine. <laughs> but for now, shall we get to the questions? Indeed. Indeed. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Jane are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who are very mad at the media.
1: (laughs) With good cause.
0: Hate to be hated, writes, I'm having a little bit of a life crisis and would really appreciate some of your big sister wisdom. I'm currently doing my undergrad in gender studies with one year to go. I really love it and want to go on to work in the field and hopefully become a feminist writer. I am nervous, though. I recently did an interview for an online newspaper and received some hate comments from it. I found it really difficult to navigate these messages and not take them to heart. I know in your line of work you receive hateful messages quite regularly and I'm so inspired by the way you deal with them. I was wondering if you could provide me with any insight on how you managed to get to that point. I'm scared that if I can't deal with a couple of online hate comments then I won't be able to make it in a field that I'm so passionate about exploring. Thank you so much for your time. Love, your little sister. Jane Gilmore, you also have the privilege of receiving a lot of hateful comments on the internet.
1: Yeah, um, Look, it's one of those things that, as you know, you and I have talked about this. We handle it in very different ways, um, and I, com- I respect the way that you do it. But I just choose to ignore it because I'm, I think, quite lucky that it's it's never really got to me. At I, I, the most, I find them mildly irritating. Sometimes I find them mildly amusing. They're a waste of t- they're a waste of time having to clean them, like playing the whack-a-mole in your comments section. But I've never really taken it personally. And I think a lot of it was just looking at the things that they would say. I remember somebody telling me once that I was too old and too fat to write. And (laughs) I mean, he'd never seen me. And even if I was too old and too fat and how how old is too old and how fat is too fat. But even if you could define those things and I did fit in that definition, what would that have to do with me writing? And how would he know? So the whole thing was just so ridiculous. Like he wasn't he wasn't upset. Well, he might have been upset about what I was saying, but he wasn't responding to what I was saying. He was responding to the fact that I dared to say anything. And, and so it was just too ridiculous to get upset about. And maybe because that, and that was fairly early on. And maybe because of that, that set my mindset to, you people are ridiculous. You're not frightening or threatening. You're just stupid. Mm. And... And so the the idiot things that they would throw at me just don't get through. And I, mm. I, as you know, I just ignore and block because I've got better things to do with my time than share them. I think the only one that I did share was the guy that told me I was nothing but a communist in panties, which is still one of my favourite. Yes, well, it's true and it's also one of the favorite, my favourite things that anybody's ever said to me, so that one's been shared far and wide.
0: We need to put that in your bio. <laughs>
1: I've actually found a screenshot of it a, a while back and put it up on Facebook.
0: <laughs> I think that this is, um, you know, you have to think about this in the as the big picture. And the mm-hmm. big picture is that you could be writing articles about how to bake fucking lamingtons mm-hmm. and some guy somewhere is gonna have a problem with you because you're a woman speaking and he will come along and he'll say, well, I don't wanna fucking bake your lamingtons, you fat cunt. Um, And the first time you read someone call you a fat cunt, you might be like, ow, that really hurts a lot. But it's not about you. It's exacerbated by the fact that you're writing, you know, political feminist polemic. And I don't know if you know this, listeners, but a lot of men really hate feminist polemic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's, it's actually just about the fact that you're existing in a way that is not asking men for permission and not asking for their, uh, is not asking for their approval. And it could be anything. Like you don't even need to be a writer online to walk down the street and have a man offer a completely unsolicited opinion on the way that you look or, you know, having a discussion with some guy in the pub and have him say, something like horribly abusive and negative because you've said something that makes him feel, mm. you know, targeted or aggrieved or whatever it is. Like how many women do you know who've had an experience of just having a basic dialogue with with a guy on a dating app and him turning around and and screeching something about, you know, the way that she looks or how attractive he thinks that she is? Because this is what men think is the best way to defang women. Yes, important thing that they associate with womanhood is whether or not they want to stick their dick in it. And to, for the, they, they think that, like, well, the best way for me to, to disempower you is to let you know I definitely don't and these are all the reasons why. But you could be the most conventionally uh, beautiful, conciliatory woman in the world. If you piss off a man, he will use the tools at his disposal to try and make you silence Ooh. yourself. And this is the thing. It's not about them silencing you actively. It's about them putting the mechanisms in place for you to to willfully silence yourself, to remove yourself from the public sphere, to stop speaking because you're afraid of what backlash you may get. And that's why it's so effective. And once you realise it's a little bit like your headlines, Jane. The fixed it. Once you realise that this is what's happening. Once you see the process in action, it becomes a lot easier to let it kind of slide off you and. Yeah. I don't want to kind of remove from anyone or take away from anyone the fact that it is very hurtful to be subjected to abuse that is unrelated to your work, that is unrelated to your argument, that is purely about trying to attack you as a person. That's very difficult and it's a difficult thing to get used to as well. But nothing will, from this point, nothing will hurt more than those first messages you received because every time you read a new one, you become a little bit more immune to it. And it's terrible that we have to become immune to it, but you, it just becomes noise. People say to me, like, how do you deal with it or how did you get to the point of not caring about it? It's because there's only so many times you can be called a fucking hideous, mm. ugly, you know, with so <laughs> One of the first articles I ever wrote after I, um, started writing publicly was I was living in South Australia and I was writing for the Sunday mail, which is an incredibly conservative newspaper. And I wrote about my two abortions and I wrote about them in a way that said, I am not ashamed of these. I made the right choice for me and women. And in fact, anyone who needs to have an abortion should not carry shame because this is healthcare. It's, it's, you know, it's nobody's business. And we are allowed to determine the paths of our own lives. And of course, the comments that I received in response were hideous but they were almost so hideous that like it's like going through it's like Zadie Smith writes in White Teeth that you get so you, there's a point at which you get so stoned that you come out on the other side of being stoned so you stone yourself sober and it's a little <laughs> like that but there's a point at which the onslaught of horrendously abusive messages that people sent you are just so extreme that it becomes ridiculous and you you kind of like travel through the tunnel of it and you're like, that was fucking wild trip. Um, I think
1: also that the, the constant repetition of it makes it much easier to separate. It's not personal because I think it yeah. was one of the first articles I wrote for Daily Life. I think about 2014 was a data analysis on crime stats um, debunking the, oh, women commit just as much violence as men. And, of course, back in 2014, you know, that was just anathema to the men of the internet and they lost their fucking minds. And the thing that I noticed about all this constant, you're so fat, you're such a slut, you're so old, you, it was just the repetition of fuck you, fat slut, like fat, old, ugly. Those three things were present in almost... Every message I got. And I was looking at it at the time thinking, do these men all know each other? And no, there's thousands <laughs> of them, but they can't. So is there like you say, are they given an instruction pamphlet or something? And then I realized that it had nothing to do with me. And looking at the abuse that, that you cop, that all my other friends were copying, again, fat, ugly, they, these are the things that are repeated. Can't get yeah. A man. yeah. No one fat, how you can be a slut who can't get a man always confused me a little bit, but logic's not their strong suit, so that's fine.
0: What, one of my favourite emails someone sent me, it was so specific in nature and it's exactly like you said, you know, that it's just you almost have to laugh at it. They Firstly, I was angry because no men wanted me, but also I had a huge gaping cunt that they were like, I, you must have a 12-inch vibrator that doesn't even reach the sides of your gaping cunt and you'd go through a pack of batteries every week for it. And I was like, that is some really specific imagery that you've sat down and come up with. And at some point you just have to be like, I just feel sorry for you. I feel so sorry for you that you're so threatened by a woman speaking that you need to sit down and dredge this actual toxic muck up from inside you. Like I am yeah, really for them. Sorry. I
1: definitely I don't know if I ever go far enough to feel sorry for them. I definitely get bored by them. And mm. to, this um to go back to your um, woman who asked the question, that this was her first experience of it. And if you think back to when you and I were getting our first experiences of it, I think it was quite a shock then. Mm. And maybe what she's experiencing is that shock of, oh, people are Absolutely. abusing me and hasn't I mean, you know, it's it's awful, as you said, to say that you have got to say to a woman who wants a public career of, well, one of the things that you have to do is become accustomed to this, but you'll be surprised how quickly you become accustomed to it. And you'll be surprised how easily, within a very short amount of time, it will just roll off and you get bored by deleting death threats. When you've reached that moment, that's the moment that you know you're going to be okay.
0: Mm. And, you know, there's lots of tactics that you can use. Uh, Jane, you block and delete. I often share them, although, you know, it's not if you were sharing every single one, then you'd never stop. <laughs> um, but I also think I'm just going to use this analogy really quickly before we move on to the next question. And I know that, you know, look, I know that the Harry Potter universe is very fraught and problematic mm-hmm. right now. And obviously, JK Rowling's transphobia can just fuck right off. Yep. But the, this analogy is good. So if you read Harry Potter, there's a creature in Harry Potter called a boggart and the boggart works by instilling fear in people. So a boggart is like a sort of, I imagine it as a giant dust mite. It lives in dark places like wardrobes and attics and, you know, spaces that are small and confined and dark and dingy. And then when they are released out into the world, they take on the form of the thing that you fear most and the, the way to destroy the bogat is to cast the ridiculous spell you imagine it in some ridiculous scenario and then it's the laughter that actually destroys the bogat. and this has always been my approach it's not to to fight earnestly with people who are abusing me it's it's to invite laughter yeah. at them To invite laughter at what they're doing and to laugh at it myself and this is because i imagine them as being the bogats of the internet you know they take on the form of the thing that you fear most which is all of all of th- the terrible like shame that patriarchy has instilled in us about the way that we look and about our purpose and, and how we function and that our only point of existence is to satisfy and please men and here is a man telling us that we're not satisfying and pleasing him and this is very scary to us when we've been socialized to think this is so important so laugh at it and what that is where I get the power from is in mm. is in rising above it laughing at it and also recognizing that The biggest harm that they can do to any single one of us is, I mean, in this sort of like figurative space is not calling us something horrible, not describing in great detail, the way that they want to dismember us as has happened to both of us, but is convincing us to remove our voices from the game to commit, convincing us to silence ourselves. That is the biggest harm they can do and, and you can't let them take that from you. Absolutely. Helpless friend asks, dear Clementine and big sister hotline potty. Two and a half years ago, after several years in heavy labour construction, I had a work injury that has left me with a rare neurological illness. This illness makes being upright excruciating, and I am now confined to my bed. I'm 26. This is quite a long letter, so I'm going to summarise some of it. Uh, The letter writer goes on to say that she had to move three states away from every person and thing that she knows to live with family to take care of her, and she is grateful for this. But it separated her from physically and geographically from some of her friends who she recognises are in toxic relationships. She says, I learnt the hard way that my girlfriends would only leave their deadbeat boyfriends when they wanted to and an early experience of a best friend being um, horribly abused by her partner led to a, a fracture between the relationship between her and her friend because the male partner then used this as a way to further abuse the woman that she loved. She says, "'This illness has taken everything from me, including getting to watch my three best friends have babies. They are all in relationships with abusive men. All men are physically, emotionally, verbally and financially abusive too. They gaslight. They say the most awful, disgusting, demeaning things. They have all had similar reflections of relationships around them and probably think there is nothing better out there. One's parents pressure her to stay with this awful man for the kids. "'It's so hard being so far away. I worry if I message them asking if they're okay,' The partner might see it and blow up and actually retaliate. They all follow similar patterns of pretending everything's okay for a couple of months and then finally exploding and confessing all this awful shit they've been putting up with. I found DV resources and secret apps, but it's too risky for them. And I'm worried for them and their kids. I did send one a feminist book inside the paper cover of another novel as a disguise. I've tried to just be supportive and be there for them and not offer any criticism so they know they can always talk to me. I've tried telling them I'm worried for their safety and they need to leave for themselves and their kids. I've dreamt of ways I could somehow get these men taken away while being confined to my bed three states away. I know you can't force anyone to help themselves. I really feel if I hadn't been injured at work and if I was still in their lives, I would have been such a strong support for them and then they would be confident enough to leave. It breaks my heart every day. How can I best support these women from so far away? Do I not be critical and just be supportive if they ever reach out? And do I be critical of the men? Can I somehow frame them for something and get them locked away forever? Wow. Okay, before I go to you, Jane, I just want to remind listeners that uh, if you are experiencing domestic abuse, then you can call 1-800-RESPECT. one respect is a 24-hour hotline in Australia uh, with trained professionals and counsellors who will be able to talk to you about what you're experiencing, and you can also call them on behalf of anyone you may be worried about as well, if you would like some professional advice in this area. Just a reminder that Jane and I are not professionally trained counsellors, but we do work in the space of feminist activism and men's violence against women. So we are going to proceed with caution.
1: Yeah, look, it's a really difficult one because, you know, as you said, and you're right, This is we're not not experts in this, and we're not qualified to give advice. I guess the only thing I can say is just share my experience of it. And I've been on both sides of that line, where you're sitting outside looking at somebody else's toxic relationship, and and you know that if you try and tell them that this is what's going on, they'll get defensive, and it's it's awful. It's so heartbreaking to watch somebody you love being abused and to feel helpless. And I think it's she's right you can't force somebody to leave but I think you can always offer to be there you can that knowledge that look when you're ready if you want to leave whatever help you need whatever I can do or I can go and find out what services are available so that you don't have to all of those things are there the minute you want them and even if you change your mind that's okay come back again keep coming back until you're ready to do it because i when it was me when i was on the inside of that relationship i remember thinking at the time that it was there were parallels to addiction in the in the way i was behaving in that that denial that that sitting there with a voice somewhere from the back of your head screaming at you saying this is so bad this is so awful this is not who you are or who you wanted to be Why are you letting this go on? And I I couldn't hear it because there was too much noise in my head and all I was focused on was was the constant trail of breadcrumbs, of just try a little bit harder, go that little bit further. You've invested so much into this now. If you give up now, all of that's wasted. Keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, and that's, you know, that's the, the cycle of abuse and the way manipulators work. And people would say things to me sometimes that would be jarring because this constant story of, oh, people don't understand us, they don't know what he's really like, he's only showing his true self to me. There's hope, we've just got to try a little bit harder, I've got to work a little bit harder and somebody would say something that would jar that and it was it was threatening. It was threatening to everything he told me about who I was and everything I was trying to make myself believe. And so I would alternate between getting angry and then having those moments of thinking, oh my God, they're right, I'm doing this, I'm, I've got to stop. I've got to get out. And so having somebody say that can help because maybe without that, I never would have got to the point of understanding that, even if I couldn't respond properly to it at the time. But because it was like a little drip of just every now and again, this is not okay, this is not okay, it did build up and, and eventually I was able to to break that addiction and get away from it and, you know, like giving up smoking for weeks after i left for months after i left i would have cravings of of wanting to go back to that mm. and it wasn't until i was far enough away from it that i could look at it and go oh my god i was so miserable that was so awful i was so tied up in knots all the time and those moments where somebody said something to me and they would get so frustrated because it looked to them like i wasn't listening and i wouldn't do anything they did actually make a difference it just I had to be ready to, to face up to them and to to be ready to leave. So it's not that, I don't think it's true to say that every time for this woman to feel that she's not doing anything, because I think she is, but I think she's also right that you can't force it. Um, the other thing that I would say, again, going back to that thing of we're not experts, Of if you know somebody who is in a situation where you think their life is in immediate danger, call the police as much as, I have all kinds of problems with the police. If somebody's life is in danger and I, I have spoken to women that this has happened to where the police have turned up in the nick of time and the guy's now in jail for attempted murder instead of murder. So that's always an option as well if you think there's really serious immediate danger. The 1-800-RESPECT line is also an option, but just that pointing out, hey, babe, this is not okay what he's doing to you can have more of an effect than it appears at the time.
0: Mm. More broadly, what we need to do is demand like really accurate narratives that address head on the reality of men's violence against women. Part of that is in looking at at how it's represented through the media, you know, checking the way that we all converse about these things, pulling people up when they do say things like, well, why doesn't she just leave? And acknowledging that it's not just a tiny, tiny percentage of men, that it's its all part of a spectrum of violence and it, these things are not unrelated and this is why it's so important if we want to prevent the worst expressions of men's violence from occurring, it's why it's so important that we address the very basic attitudes of casual sexism that pave the way towards those things.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that, that can be a really useful way to think of it is to understand domestic abuse as a grooming process and in the same way that... that predators who prey on children groom their victims to believe that it's okay, that the secret needs to be kept, that all the things that they say. Abusive men groom their victims so that by the time they start the abuse, it's as you say, it didn't just come out of nowhere, but they've already sowed the seeds to make sure that the woman they're abusing will keep their secrets, will take the shame onto herself and will buy the story that they're selling, which is, oh, we can have a wonderful, happy, magnificent relationship if only you would you know, mm. whatever he's doing that he can blame her for that therefore causes the abuse, that, that cycle. It's a grooming process and it's not something that is easy to see. I, I mean, of all people, I should be aware of the signs, right? If it worked mm. on me, it can work on anyone and it's understanding that I think is key to People giving the sort of support that can help women escape from those violent situations because it's saying no, you're not stupid to be like this. No, you're this is not your fault that you're in this relationship. You are you should not be approaching every man as if within well, six months time you're suddenly going to be something else that is not what you're presenting to me now because you can't approach your life like that, constantly afraid of things that may happen in six months' time. So all these things are, as you say, they're all tied into. The things that men know that women will accept because we have been accepting catcalling which starts for most women in Australia when they're about 12. Mm. We are told from that moment that that the world belongs to men and that we are not safe in it and none of these things stand in isolation they're all knitted mm. together to, to form a, a backdrop to our lives that that does actually facilitate abuse.
0: One of the things that I think is also really important to talk about not just in regards to this letter but generally is the continued selling of this you know fantasy idea that what women need to do is find a man and have babies with him and that if this if we can't do this somehow we're a failure or if we do this and then we leave or it, you know it doesn't work out that it's a failure or that we're, we're failed women in some way, I think that that causes so much harm and it's not just harm to our self-esteem and to our aspirations but it also is is a very key part, I think, of what enables men to lay traps for women in this way. Yeah, that we're taught that aspiring to, you know, nuclear family in a heterosexual context in a heteropatriarchy is the pinnacle of our achievements.
1: Yeah, it's really funny. You know, we are talking before about the... Um do you guys all know each other with the the fat, ugly, slut comments, the abuse ones, the love bombing language has really strong similarities. You're the one, you're the one I've been waiting for, you're the one I've been looking for. That language, when you talk to women who've been through those toxic relationships, how often that starts with that, you're the one, so you can be the only one, the only person that can give them and then it becomes your responsibility to give them everything they need. And, of course, nobody can do that, but you're a failure when you have it. Mm-hmm. And that ties into what you were saying about this myth of intimate romantic love is is the pinnacle of love, which I, God, it took me so long to learn this and I could kick myself, but it's such bullshit because actually I have had far more intimate loving relationships that were not sexual than I think almost any of my sexual relationships and I have had good sexual relationships as well, which were loving and fun and intimate, but they don't have <clears throat> the same the same depth and the same trust and the same respect and the same intimacy that that really loving, strong friendships have. Mm. But we're told this idea that if it's not if sex isn't part of it, then it's not true love. If sex yeah. isn't part of your relationship, it's not your most it's not your primary relationship. All these other relationships are secondary to the guy that you're fucking, or the you know. It just for straight women, that's just awful,
0: and that's something that's really sold specifically to women as well, because men are allowed to talk about their you know, like he's my brother, he's the most important, you know, he's yeah. like my rock, um, because of course we're just the women that kind of like pave the path for them. Yeah. Uh, I always think of that scene in in Beaches, because obviously I'm I'm a big proponent of you know platonic intimate love between women and women being the ones that save each other and women being the the biggest loves of our life but that scene in beaches which is one of my favorite movies where they've Cece and Hillary have fallen out and she cries Cece's crying to her husband and she says what will I do without a best friend and he says you've got me and she kind of looks at him and she says it's not the same no and it's that's the thing is that you know even with I also feel like we need to divest women all over of this notion that the only valid way to be a mother is to find a man, obviously it's incredibly homophobic, but to find a man to become a mother with, to validate that motherhood. Whereas actually almost every mother I know, if she were provided with the the right support systems and the right, you know, emotional support the right community support and the right financial support would enjoy mothering a lot more by herself with shared care probably but you know that I think actually that also traps women because they they think that the only way that they can have the family that they want is to is to kind of fit into that nuclear model
1: mm, the the fairy tale of then they got married and lived happily ever after which even in the healthiest relationship even in genuinely happy heterosexual relationships one person is not enough and particularly if you've got children you can't raise children and have a a full interesting involved life with just one person you need your family you need your friends you need the the people you play sport with and the, the people that you read books with and the ones that you go for walks with and the the woman down at the coffee shop who remembers your name and asks about your dog you need all of those people to live a full life and the the very few happy heterosexual relationships I know are actually the ones where both parties have all of that and welcome it Mm. and and not just accept it but are really glad of it because there are times when you just got to go oh Jesus I just can't deal with your shit right now and that's okay because there's somebody else who can Mm. and without that then it's always your responsibility to deal with their shit right now and Mm. no can ever live up to that so the relationship starts to disintegrate right there without that acceptance that everybody has got to have a whole wide circle of of people whether it's somebody you one you talk to about everything every day or the person you see once a year everybody needs all of that and if you can't accept that in somebody else then I I mean that's should be the number one warning bell for it an imminent toxic relationship is somebody who says, oh, I have a problem with you having other people in your life.
0: Definitely. It's interesting that you mentioned before that if someone like you could experience this, then with all of your academic knowledge that obviously it's a lot more complicated than people want to think. I mean, I, I've been in relationships before where the red flags are there mm-hmm. and and I've ignored the red flags, not Interestingly, not because I've been so enamored by the person, but because the gaslighting has been so effective mm. that I can, I was almost like being outside of my body and watching it while it happened, mm. that I was sort of being sucked into this uh, kind of toxic situation in which I was constantly walking on eggshells. Egg this is in a past, past relationship, constantly walking on eggshells, worrying that I was going to set this person off. He was very threatened by my growing career. Um, And I felt like it was like all of the conditioning that I've had as a woman in patriarchy, all of the blueprint of it, despite my intellectual knowledge it was like someone flipped the switch on it. And I was like, well, I need to soothe. I need to calm. I need to make sure that his ego is never under threat from, from me. And it's just so insidious. So the other thing I think as well is to really remind people whether or not you're experiencing this yourself or have experienced it, that it is, it works because they know how to do it. They know how to, it can, and it can happen to any of us, that there is no Shame in being targeted by someone who effectively knows how to abuse you because this is they've been working on it for a long time and they've developed the skills
1: again another red flag if you're listening to this and some of this is starting to ring a little bit true if you feel shame because you feel like you are in that relationship the shame is not yours the shame is his you did not create the abuse he did and i've been writing that sentence for so long now that i i wake up in the middle of the night saying it out loud to my dog but I also know how hard it is to believe when you're in the middle of it mm. and I don't think I I would ever be surprised now at the sort of toxic relationships women will stay with not knowing that that's what they're doing. Mm. I don't think that would ever shock me again now.
0: Just as we wrap that question up, I just want to repeat again for listeners that if you are experiencing domestic abuse, or you know someone who's experiencing domestic abuse, then you can call one eight hundred Respect. Uh, and if if someone is in immediate danger, if you feel safe and comfortable to call the police, which is a very fraught thing for a lot of people, I understand that. But if you think that someone's life might be immediately under threat, then obviously. Uh, saving their life is paramount. Um, but, yes, it's a very complicated scenario. The, to sort of summarise the advice for that little sister, the best thing that I think we can do is to is to let the people we love, who we worry about, know that no matter what happens, we are here for them if and when they need us mm. and that they, they, they will... You know, they don't ever need to apologize for how long it may take them to get there. listening to the big sister hotline a weekly advice podcast that delivers no nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back your big sisters you can find us on apple podcasts spotify podchaser google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content and you can also listen to all the back episodes if you do like it then please would you consider rating and reviewing it because it's really nice to have the feedback first and foremost but also it helps to put the podcast into the line of sight of other little sisters and my one goal in life right now is to create a giant army of little sisters who are prepared to Tear down the fucking patriarchy. If you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline, only available for download to subscribers. And I will say that this month's bonus episode is going to be with Teddy Dunn, who is a former big sister, Teddy is a trans man who will be joining me to have a special one-hour discussion about masculinity and feminism and unlearning a lot of the tropes of toxic masculinity. So if you're a patron subscriber, then you get to listen to that. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. We talked a lot this episode about sharing information with your girlfriends and passing on your wisdom, so I want to remind you again of the pelvic floor health benefits of Perifit. Easy to use and actually fun. Who thought Kegels could be fun? It'll have you jumping for joy on a trampoline in no time. Find it at perifit.co. My guest this week has been Jane Gilmore, writer, activist, drinker of wine, excellent feminist a communist in panties, and a great friend. Jane, what's up next for you? Uh,
1: I'm actually working on some fiction at the moment, which I've never written before, but lockdown has prevented a lot of the research that I wanted to do in the next book, so I thought I'd give it a try. And it's turning out to be a lot more fun than I expected.
0: Uh, Is there any possibility that we'll see this fiction published? I hope so.
1: I definitely hope so, but, I mean... (sighs) As I was said at the beginning, who knows what's happening in the years to come. Um, the publishing world's been affected like everything else, but certainly I hope so. And, look, I've written it all now. If nobody else will publish it, fuck it, I'll do it myself. I've done that before and I'll do it again.
0: Yeah, well, this is the, this is the way of the future, isn't it? It's all sort of self-publishing and self actualization <laughs> um, Jane, thank you so much. We normally answer about three questions, but because those two questions in particular were quite uh you know they were they were very specific in nature and we we wanted to take care especially with that second question uh thank you so much for bringing your expertise and not just not just your professional expertise but also your personal experience to the show and to the answering of these questions
1: thank you so much for having me clem as always it was a pleasure
0: Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open.